February 1931, in the dead of winter, more than a year into the Great Depression, Hassan, a well-dressed factory worker in his 20s, with a strong build and a scar above his left eye, sat for a deportation hearing in Gary, Indiana. He fielded dozens of questions aimed at judging whether he had any legal right to remain in the U.S. Where are you from? Where do you live? Of what country are you now a citizen? What proofs have you? Who will you stay with if we send you back? Hassan didn't want to go back to the place where he was born. There was nothing left for him there. His folks and everyone he was close to lived in America. He wanted to stay in America. He liked America, he said. What he wanted was to become a U.S. citizen. Hassan's case was typical. He was just another young working man with no papers or priors whose residence in the United States was now in jeopardy. This podcast is about Hassan's fight to stay, but it's not just about Hassan. It's also about a community with over a century of history in the United States. People who learned English, sent their children to American schools, joined local organizations, paid taxes, even fought and died for their country, and yet also had to continually fight to be counted as American. I'm Chris Grayton, and this is Deporting Ottoman Americans. A journey which began in Lebanon. Peppers selling dry goods. Hordes of immigrants. Full of gratitude to the American people. They came here for one reason. In America, everything's bigger. I favor rigidly restricted immigration. A member of the Klan. Money. Freedom. Sovereign human rights. The leaders bleeding from their stars. 100,000 people died. People were looking at a garbage can for food. Now this is my father talking. Illegal aliens entering our country. They are very good to me, all these American people. God bless them. We start in an unexpected place, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, where a century ago, migrants from the Ottoman Empire were building a new home in the United States. Family ties, village ties, um, various associational ties did determine where migrants tended to follow in the footsteps of people they knew. That's Reem Bailuni a historian at Agnes Scott College, explaining how migrants of the early Arab diaspora ended up where they ended up in seemingly far-off places like Sioux Falls. The reason why you see Syrians scattered across the United States in large part is because many initial Syrian migrants traveled to the Midwest as peddlers selling dry goods. And in many cases, sometimes accidental, they decided to settle down in a place where you know, they could set up a small shop, and they were followed by family members or distant relatives or people who knew them from their villages back home. And so you see people from the same villages or regions tending to settle near one another. Until relatively recently, what little was written about the Arab-American experience was mainly about the experience of becoming American. Reem is part of a new generation of scholars who are bringing to light the connections between the Middle East and what we call the Mahjar. The word mahjar is an Arabic term that stems from the word hejara, which means to migrate. And so the term itself literally translates to the place of emigration. It both refers to the various places that Arabic-speaking migrants have settled and continues to be a term that's used in the current day. But it also referred to a national space that tended to sort of outstretch the boundaries of homeland. Conceptually, it's refers to this transnational field that encompasses people from greater Syria. It refers to a diasporic community in the widest sense. A pioneer in the study of this transnational sense of home among the Arab diaspora was Professor Akram Khater, head of NC State's Khairala Center for Lebanese Diaspora Studies. Contrary to the sort of self-congratulatory American history narrative, the idea that everybody came here because they were tired and they were persecuted and they came here to the shores of America and ultimately they landed here and they loved it. In fact, most immigrants, whether they are German or whether they are Lebanese or Syrian, they came here for one reason, make money. So very few of them imagine that this journey will change them and in the process will change the country or the village or the town from where they came. Akram Khater took on some of the basic assumptions about migration history in the U.S. in the book Inventing Home. 
He demonstrated that as America gradually became a second home for people from Lebanon and Syria, home and the family itself were redefined in every sense. If you are coming to the United States, for example, to make money, then, of course, the women had to work. The children had to work. But the problem with that is that all of a sudden, you're breaking all sorts of taboos. One is the quote-unquote traditional taboo. That is where you came from. The idea that women should not be working alongside men with whom they're not related. The debate was incredibly furious about honor, shame, sexuality, and so on and so forth, as women are going out. The second one, by the way, is the American taboo, which is the middle class notion of womanhood. The idea that the woman should stay home, that it's shameful that these Syrian men were making their wives work. So as these folks were coming in to make money, all of a sudden they're finding that they have to argue within the community and outside the community. They are questioning almost daily. Because even when you go outside to sell, the, the gaze of the people you're selling to is telling you that there's something wrong with you. Good morning, ladies. No peddlers. Always no peddlers. Well, maybe some bad ones have been here before. Huh? Uh, and then we suffer. They cannot know we are honest people. Hassan, the young man I introduced at the beginning of the episode, was part of a transnational community. For much of his childhood, his parents lived in the U.S., while he remained in the Ottoman Empire. Hassan and his family were originally from the village of Mashhara in the Bekaa Valley, near Lebanon's present border with Syria. And in fact, most of the first Arabic speakers who came to the U.S. hailed from modern-day Lebanon. Geographically speaking, Lebanon is tiny, smaller than Connecticut. But this tiny region sent people all around the world in this period, to places like Buenos Aires, Dakar, and Sioux Falls. By World War I, you have nearly half a million immigrants from greater Syria in the Americas. The engine of all this migration was Beirut. In the early 1800s, Beirut only claimed about 10,000 inhabitants. But a century later, on the eve of the First World War, over 100,000 people lived there, making it one of the largest cities in the Ottoman Empire and one of its economic powerhouses. At the heart of Beirut's growth was silk. During the 19th century, villagers in Mount Lebanon increasingly farmed mulberry trees, which produced the leaves used to feed silkworms. The silk would then be exported to be processed in factories in places like Lyon in France. Lebanon became one of the most commercialized regions of the late Ottoman Empire. The boom times were good, but the busts could be devastating. When global demand for Lebanese silk plummeted, many peasant families were vulnerable. Mulberry trees were a big investment, and you couldn't just plant different crops overnight when the silk price collapsed. But you could leave. It is not the poorest that immigrate. Most people who immigrate are not poor. They are at the risk of becoming poor. The railways and steamships that made Beirut a center for silk export also made it possible for people who once produced silk to go elsewhere. And even families like Hassan's, who didn't necessarily have any connection to the silk trade, began to venture out. You say that in America they have mountains bigger than this one? In America, everything's bigger. What else? What else in America? Hassan identified himself to immigration authorities not as Lebanese, but rather Syrian. This was the common designation at the time for all Arabic-speaking migrants from the eastern Mediterranean. By the 1920s, the areas of the U.S. with the biggest Syrian populations were in and around New York City, Detroit, and Boston. I've uploaded a map from the 1924 book The Syrians in America by Professor Philip Hitti, which shows the largest enclaves of Syrians in the United States. It shows how widely Syrians had settled. And in fact, it doesn't even show the true extent, since after all, there's lots of dots missing, including the ones that would have been on parts of the Midwest, like South Dakota. Most Syrians who came to the U.S. were Christian, but sizable numbers of Muslims, like Hassan, came from the Bekaa, and many of those from the Bekaa settled in the Midwest. Probably 80 to 85 percent of those who came to the United States and to the Americas from greater Syria were of Christian background. But there were, was a significant Muslim population in the United States, you know, Muslim immigrants from greater Syria who adopted, in many cases, American names, looked and dressed and shared in the same cultural spaces as their Christian counterparts, were the first to establish Muslim institutions like mosques in the interwar period. And one of the first mosques was established in Highland Park, Michigan, for example, in 1921. 
1929, Syrian Muslims established one of the oldest and most enduring mosques in North Dakota. Syrians established the Mother Mosque of America, um, called that because it's still standing in Cedar Rapids, Iowa in 1934. Syrians in the U.S. did, to a large extent, maintain a distinctive identity, organizing through community groups, religious institutions, and a robust Arabic-language press. And the diaspora of the Mahja remained connected to folks back home in a lot of ways, sentimental, intellectual, spiritual, and political. But fundamentally, the transnational space of the Syrian diaspora was held together by matters of household and finance. People sent money back to the Ottoman Empire from far and wide, nurturing economically dynamic and mobile families that traversed continents. By the end of the Ottoman period, many families back in the Ottoman Empire would become dependent on remittances from America for their survival. And in this way, small American towns became connected to small Ottoman villages on the other side of the Atlantic. The eyes of the nation turned westward and saw beyond the Mississippi a fabulous empire, yet untamed, a land of thundering bison herds and savage Indians. Into this territory poured the legions of Americans whose faith and fortunes had been scattered by the war, and the hordes of immigrants who flooded from Europe to stake their homes on the sweeping plains. Some found peace, some found riches, and some found death. Sioux Falls had been founded during the 1850s, when most of the region was still controlled by the Dakota people. The city takes its name from the label Sioux that early Europeans ascribed to the local inhabitants. It was evacuated during the wars between the U.S. government and American Indian communities in the Midwest, which continued until 1877. It was only after the U.S. had broken the authority of these powerful confederations that settler encroachment accelerated in earnest. During the 1880s, an explosion in the construction of railways led to the rapid growth of Sioux Falls into a small urban center. By the 1890s, Sioux Falls had over 10,000 inhabitants, and Syrians were already establishing themselves. Although Sioux Falls was still a small city, it was becoming an important site in the constellation of the Syrian Mahjar. I managed to find some oral history interviews with Syrians who had once lived in South Dakota. They're part of a collection at the Smithsonian derived from the pioneering research of Lebanese-American historian Alixa Naf, who passed away in 2013. Her research materials, including the original cassette recordings, were donated to the Smithsonian Museum of American History and are available to researchers. I didn't find any evidence of Hassan in the archives, but I did come across interviews with a man named Ali, whose family had followed almost precisely the same path to Sioux Falls as that of Hassan and his family. Like Hassan's father, Ali's father settled in Sioux Falls before the First World War and became a peddler selling dry goods to the rural communities of South Dakota. We go to the farmhouses and they place the orders in and you have the stuff and if they like it, they order for samples, you know. Yeah. And maybe after they come, they take it delivered. And if they want it right then, you give it to them, you know. What's yeah. that? The family held from the Baka region of modern Lebanon. Their village of Karaun is less than two hours on foot from Hassan's village of Mashkara. And like many, they were following in the footsteps of pioneering relatives. Well, in that, yeah, actually, sure. to tell you the truth, you take Karaun, a small village. I mean, they're all, they're all just about related to each other yeah. in one way or another. You know what I mean? If it's I, not I from that. In fact, Ali's cousin, Alia, is also in the Neff collection. Sioux Falls was a sort of a farmer's well, shopping center, really. The, gen- the farmers had come in on Saturday to do their shopping. It was a beautiful, peaceful little city. Probably by the time I left, it must have been about 30,000. Mm-hmm. Oh. Like Alia was born in Sioux Falls before the First World War. She recalled that by the 1920s, there were a couple hundred Syrians, the majority of them Muslim, and at least 50 or so of the men were employed as peddlers who ranged throughout South Dakota and into neighboring states like Minnesota, Iowa, and even Montana. Her father was one of them. He traveled around the country quite a bit first, to Mexico, then he went to South America, and then he came back to this country again. He took the first train out of Chicago to Omaha. From Omaha, he bought a horse and went on to South Dakota. He heard there was gold in South Dakota, and he wanted to go see if he could find some for himself, I guess. Alia's father hadn't started off as a peddler. He had been a homesteader. 
but out in the remote countryside, he soon found business opportunities. Uh, he sold to the Indians because, see, the homestead was in Kodoka, and the Rosebud Reservation, they had other reservations close by, and later on he expanded mm-hmm. after he moved uh, back to Sioux Falls. Alia's father gradually expanded his ventures, moving up from peddling small wares and small boxes to commanding a fairly impressive horse and buggy operation. With help of different people, Norwegians and Germans and whatnot, he built the first buggy. And then, well, it was a small buggy at first, with just a team of horses. Then he got a larger wagon, where he had ready-made clothing and suits and yard goods, shoes, and whatnot. And he prospered. As he prospered, he sent for a brother, a cousin, two cousins, and each one he'd start. Alia's recollections are full of interesting encounters among those early settlers of Sioux Falls. My father's stepbrother. My father started him off as he started off with a small box. Well now, he couldn't speak English, but he learned the names and prices of things. So it happened that a smallpox epidemic had been going out uh, around in the, uh, in the country. And the, fir- the first farmhouse that he came to on foot, he knocked at the door and the woman came, smallpox, go away, smallpox, go away. So he went to the next place, smallpox, go away. And he was thinking, what did my brother do to me? And he went, you know, he slept in the fields. And then he went on, he traveled wearily back to Sioux Falls. He said, when he came into the general store, he says, give me the biggest box you, you've got here. Every place I went, they kept saying to me, small box, go away, small box, go away. By the time Alia's family left Sioux Falls in the late 20s, the city contained a number of stores, each started by a Syrian peddler who had worked his way up to selling dry goods or other items. By the time our protagonist Hassan arrived in the U.S., his father Hussein, who went by Sam, had become the co-owner of one such store in Sioux Falls, having worked his way up from odd jobs and peddling. The journey from peddler to shop owner to middle class was a common path in the Arab-American story all over the country. But it wasn't the only path by any means. And as families became established in the U.S. and became naturalized citizens, their integration into the American social fabric became deeper, and their economic activities diversified. Syrian workers were increasingly employed in factories, and many had become established professionals, physicians, dentists, lawyers, and so forth. In between the period during which the parents of Hassan, Ali, and Alia migrated to the U.S. in 1924, things were also rapidly changing back home. On the eve of the First World War, Syrian migration to the U.S. had been at an all-time high. Just under 10,000 per year were entering the United States. Hassan's parents moved to the U.S. during that peak period. His dad had arrived sometime during the first decade of the 20th century. His mom followed a few years later. Hassan was only seven then. Maybe he and his younger brother were too little to make the trip. Anyway, who knew how long they would stay? Roughly a third of that first generation of migrants from Lebanon would return from the Mahjar later. When the war began in 1914, Hassan was still a kid, living in the family village with his grandmother in the Ottoman Empire. His adolescence overlapped with some of the most trying years in the modern history of Lebanon. The economy of Lebanon had become increasingly reliant on people staying in America, on their becoming American, and sending money back to the family. While this was a viable and creative economic strategy in times of relative plenty and freedom of movement, it would prove dangerous throughout the ordeal of the First World War. Much of the Ottoman Empire suffered an acute economic crisis throughout the war, but nowhere was harder hit than Lebanon, the epicenter 
of a terrible famine. The war was particularly difficult for the Lebanese because um, the highest source of income in Lebanon were remittances from the United States, uh, were, were cash transfers done by Lebanese residents all over the United States to their loved ones in, uh, in Mount Lebanon. And then the second highest source of income was the export of silk to France. And Lebanese people couldn't do either one of these things after um, the blockade becomes total in early 1915. Graham Pitts, a research fellow at Georgetown University's Center for Contemporary Arab Studies, has examined the famine from absolutely every angle. He argues that before the war, nowhere had been more vulnerable to famine than Lebanon, densely populated and completely reliant on global connections. During the war, the British and French blockaded the eastern Mediterranean coast as a deliberate strategy to cut off supplies of all things, including food. Meanwhile, wartime demand for labor and animals caused agricultural production to grind to a halt. Mass starvation in Mount Lebanon ensued within less than a year of the war's start. And so you see death rates of around 12% in the Syrian interior and Palestine, whereas one in three Lebanese uh, died during the war. One in three Lebanese and one in three residents of Beirut. So about 200,000 people um, altogether um, died just between Beirut and Mount Lebanon. I asked Graham if he's seen many comparable events in the historical record. No, I mean, perhaps like the Black Death. In in, in lots of places in Europe, you saw death rates in excess of that. But um, globally, during the First World War, that has to be um, among the highest death rates, especially for a civilian population. During those years, some families still got by on remittances from the U.S., which were processed by the American consulate until the U.S. joined the war in 1917. Graham found some letters during his research that reflect the desperation of the wartime period. Some are even hard for him to read out loud. So there was a woman whose husband was a Protestant minister in the United States. She stopped receiving remittances sometime in the summer of 1916 when she began writing the consulate in Beirut to an American employee there. She took a pencil and she wrote in, in Lebanese dialect on, on, on the back of a letter she had received, a typed letter she had received from the consulate. We have become my daughter and I in need of clothes. I don't need to explain more. My daughter has a fever and constant attack, so she cannot come down to Beirut in person. So she had sent the note with one of the employees um, of her acquaintance at, at the consulate. She, she, and she started begging Amy Nixon. She said, for God's sake, uh, send me 10 lira. So yeah, we have dramatic voices like that come out of uh, the archival record that we have here in the United States about the social history of the war and women's experience. When the war was over, there was nothing left for Hassan and Mashkara. His parents had established a life for themselves in the U.S., and his grandmother had passed away. Sometime in his early 20s, Hassan resolved to join his family in South Dakota. There were lots of people in Lebanon and Syria just like Hassan who wanted to come to America. But the U.S. had instituted new regulations that made it difficult for them to enter as permanent migrants. If you want more information on these measures, I recommend checking out episode one of the Deporting Ottoman Americans podcast. The visa quota system implemented in 1924 was incredibly unfavorable to people who lived in the countries of the Eastern Mediterranean, and deliberately so. Syria received just 100 slots per year. This betrayal of the Syrian and Lebanese by the United States as well as by Britain and France, right in their time of need, is largely forgotten. About 14,000 Syrians had served in the American army during the war, and many others had fought for the Entente armies that would occupy the Middle East after the Ottoman defeat. But after the First World War, Syrian migration to the U.S. began to decline in part because it simply became too difficult to go legally. However, there were still people like Hassan who managed to make it by other means. His journey to the U.S. was certainly circuitous, and it must have taught him much about the wide world outside the Bekaa Valley. He obtained a Syrian passport and left Beirut by ship in 1924. He first arrived in the port of Marseille in southern France, after he went to the port of Le Havre in Normandy. A few years later, he embarked for Havana, Cuba. In Cuba, Hassan worked on a farm for a few months, mostly keeping to himself. And after some months in Cuba, he decided to make the big move. He took work shoveling coal on an American ship bound for New York. And as a seaman, Hassan was able to get off the ship, 
It's just that he was supposed to get back on. Except he didn't. And just like that, he was in New York City. It sounds like an incredible journey, but it was actually a common route. Cuba was a migration hub for people from the former Ottoman Empire, and as a result, by the 1930s, the island's Arab population was over 30,000. Remember Ali, whose family story was recorded as part of the Neff collection? They made the exact same journey as Hassan right around that time. Well, we have to stay there. In order to come through, we have to stop in Cuba in order to get our visa from over there through the immigration site in order to come through. That's when we stopped over there. We were there, I think, for quite a while, mm-hmm. as far as I know. Mm-hmm. Trying to arrange visas or something, right, probably? Well, yeah, I say that's when they start getting strict, I guess, as far as immigration. Yeah, they do. That's when they were starting Whether Ali and the rest of his family entered legally, the important difference was that Ali was a few years younger than Hassan, and therefore still a child. His status was tied to his parents. Hassan had entered New York without a visa, on his own, as an adult. And unlike the mass of migrants who had taken up residence in neighborhoods of New York City, like Little Syria, Hassan did not linger long. He soon headed out west to join his parents and a large community of Syrians in South Dakota. Hassan saw himself as a regular working man. That's how he referred to himself in his testimonies. But his father had some standing in the small town. He co-owned a shop in Sioux Falls where Hassan got his first job. After his father went to work for the city, Hassan continued to help run the store. Hassan's father had attempted to become a citizen more than once, filing a declaration of intent to naturalize, or what they called first papers back in those days. But he was never able to complete his naturalization as of 1930. Hassan's family was Muslim, but he claimed to have gone to both the Christian church and the, quote, Mohammedan church, i.e. the mosque, in his native village. This claim was one of the more unusual facets of Hassan's deportation hearings. Was the border between Islam and Christianity really that fluid? Ali also remembered that relations between Muslims and Christians had been close and intimate in the Bekaa region. Similarly, Ali recalled that a Muslim-Christian divide was not very important for the people from the Bekaa at least in Sioux Falls. In fact, it does not seem that these early migrants saw Islam and Christianity as being so fundamentally different as many do today. In his oral history testimonies, Ali casually referred to the mosque as a church. This reminded me of another strange artifact of social life in early Sioux Falls, the Shriner Temple called El Riyadh, founded in 1888. It was established as part of a network of about 50 Shriner temples and mosques throughout the United States and Canada at the time. These buildings were not actually Jewish or Muslim places of worship. The Shriners are a Masonic organization founded on the basis of fraternity and fun by two American-born Christian men. But for reasons that you can read about elsewhere, the Shriners adopted garish Orientalist motifs and symbols of Islam in the Middle East as part of their secret society. In addition to employing the crescent in their flags and emblems, Shriners donned fezes, the hat of Middle Eastern modernity in the Ottoman Empire. You can see some photos of the Sioux Falls Temple's annual parade on our website. It's unclear what the Sioux Falls Syrian community made of this appropriation. But according to my research, some Syrians of Sioux Falls were affiliated with the El Riyadh Shriner Temple. And this probably shouldn't be surprising, as it was an important feature of urban life in Sioux Falls. By the early 20th century, The Shriners were a fixture of American cities, especially in the Midwest, where many men of social standing were affiliated with a lodge of some kind. Men could gather in these places and unite through these contrived rituals. And maybe Syrians who attended these gatherings thought they were strange. Maybe they just thought they were American, that this was a way to belong. Or at the very least, it was a great way to get people to come to your store. At the time, it was important for Syrians in these small towns to belong even if it meant playing dress-up with the Shriners. 
And the reason it was so important was that in 1920s America, racialized violence and bigotry were a constant threat. And we're talking in the millions. People estimate the size of the 1920s Klan is between three and six million people. Linda Gordon's recent book, The Second Coming of the KKK, details how a newly founded Ku Klux Klan attained a nationwide membership in the millions during the middle of the 1920s. The new Klan wasn't a fringe terrorist organization. It was a mainstream political movement. And fraternal organizations, community groups, and even churches served as potential arenas for building the group's network. They elected Klansmen to national, state, and local governments, and these elected officials delivered the legislation that their supporters wanted. The Klan elected 11 governors, 45 congresspeople, congressmen, there were no women, and that doesn't count what are probably hundreds of uh, state and local elected officials. In fact, Albert Johnson, the U.S. congressman who led the push for the 1924 Immigration Act that created racially biased immigration quotas, was a member of the KKK. The KKK tried to obstruct key protections such as anti-lynching legislation. And by the 20s, the lynch mobs had expanded their purview to target not just African Americans, but immigrant groups as well. University of Southern California historian Sarah Gualtieri's groundbreaking book, Between Arab and White, details a gruesome case from 1929 involving a Syrian family in Florida. A grocer named Nalarami was lynched, and his wife was killed by a police officer. The persecution of Arab Americans during the 20s and 30s occurred despite the fact that the first wave of migrants had fought hard to be counted as equals under the law. The case for Syrian belonging and whiteness, as it were, was argued on a number of grounds. Cultural affinities based on Christianity, the biblical past of their home region, and racial classification systems of anthropologists and scientists of the period. And in principle, the argument worked. But even if Syrians won these legal battles, that didn't stop Americans from still regarding them as not quite white, not quite belonging. The question of belonging had initially seemed like a settled matter for a generation of Syrians who immigrated and naturalized in the U.S. But it quickly became unsettled again during the 1920s. And it wasn't just the social status of Syrians that seemed tenuous. For many, it was also a time of economic desperation. Even before the stock market crash in 1929, the economy of the Midwest had been transforming. Farms were struggling. As the effects of the Depression set in during the 1930s, the agricultural economy of the Midwest collapsed, giving rise to a large exodus of unemployed migrants. Central regions like Kansas and northern Texas saw the ecological disaster of the so-called Dust Bowl during those years. They were dark you times. Can't blame the, you can't work, blame the working class of people. So you went on welfare? Did your father go on welfare? Ooh, my father went on welfare. I didn't go on welfare. You didn't go on welfare? Back in the 30s. Did you work the whole time during the 30s? When? Well, after you well there was no jobs to be had. There were soup lines. People were looking at the garbage cans for uh-huh. food. Uh-huh. <laughs> you could see was sweating for a cup of soup, a line from here to Dick's, sweating for a goddamn cup of soup. Many Syrians had made their living peddling wares in rural areas that didn't have access to the department stores of the city. When the farms disappeared, so too did the source of living for many Syrians. And so they migrated to the cities, where there were family members, welfare services, and in rare cases, factory jobs. The Ford Motor Company in the suburbs of Detroit embodied this trend. The area of Dearborn in particular became akin to a little Ford bubble. Scholar Victoria Saker Wiesty explains. You know, then as now, Dearborn really was a company town. I mean, it, because it was fairly affordable for immigrants and, you know, migrant Americans, uh, little ethnic communities started to sort of pop up here and there, and Dearborn became a pretty thriving sort of melting pot all in and and of itself. But everything in the town answered to the needs and the um, 
programs of the Ford Motor Company. So this is why it was, you know, really seen as a kind of commitment to the whole Ford culture if you decided to work there. There would be no dissent tolerated. There, You, you accepted the speed-ups. You accepted life on the assembly line. If you were injured on the job, you know, too bad for you. It was pretty brutal. Ford was one of the few businesses doing okay during the Great Depression. And our friend Ali was one of the many who moved to the Detroit area to work there during the 1930s. In 1932, violent clashes erupted during protests calling for Ford to take on more workers to alleviate unemployment amid layoffs at Ford and beyond. But it was subsequent activism by labor organizers that led to the most acrimonious conflicts between Ford and the workers. There was increased pressure on Ford to make some concessions. And in reaction to that, and this is not surprising if you know sort of how Henry Ford's mind worked, he became even more obstreperous. He stiffened his spine and became even more authoritarian in uh, how he related to uh, any attempts to organize. And, you know, that ultimately ends up turning violent. And, you know, the images of labor leaders bleeding from their skulls is one of the turning points in the Ford Motor Company history of its relationship to unions. Decades later, Ali still remembered how his role in labor organizing at the Ford factory got him into trouble during the 1930s. But when he was laid off, the union he helped start helped get him his job back. Had Ali been undocumented, the consequences might have been very different. The men going to work can see the freight trains bringing in the raw materials, iron ore, coal, and limestone. Hassan also left Sioux Falls and the family store at the beginning of the Great Depression to look for factory jobs in the Midwest. He ended up in Gary, Indiana. What Ford and the automotive industry were for Detroit, steel was for Gary. In fact, the city took its name from the steel magnate who essentially founded it during the early 20th century. Gary had some of the largest steel production facilities in the U.S. Hassan worked at the Illinois Steel Company. Gary, Indiana was literally and figuratively America's melting pot. In 1930, roughly 20% of its 100,000 residents were foreign-born, like Hassan. Another 25% of the new population had at least one foreign-born parent. And in addition, almost 20% of the city's population was comprised of black migrants who had recently moved up from the South. The experience of industrialization is critical to Hassan's deportation story, as well as to the history of many Arab Americans. Although Gary offered financial opportunities, moving to the city also carried risks. Had he never left his family's home in Sioux Falls, had he never left that close-knit community, Hassan might never have been detected. The archival files for his deportation case aren't actually that forthcoming about how precisely he was detected, but apparently his immigration status was reported by a neighbor. And when he was caught by immigration authorities and made to stand trial, Hassan would have to rely on his family's roots in the Sioux Falls community in order to argue against deportation. Hassan was being deported because he didn't have the right papers. His official charge was, quote, that he remained for a longer period of time than permitted. He was nervous during his initial encounters with the authorities and stated as much in subsequent hearings. The records of these hearings reflect a clear power imbalance. The migrants in question rarely had the upper hand when confronting the probing inquiries of an INS investigator. But Hassan's family could at least afford to hire a lawyer to defend him in the deportation case. With decent legal representation, your chances improved considerably. Hassan's lawyer tried to argue for his client's sympathetic character and demonstrate that the Syrians of Sioux Falls were upstanding citizens and good Americans. He called a number of witnesses to appear before the INS in Sioux Falls to help make this point. One character witness was Carl Hager, a neighbor of Hassan's family. He was a naturalized Syrian father of seven who owned stores and property in the town. He claimed that, quote, he knows intimately every person of Syrian extraction in the city of Sioux Falls. He was also chummy with the mayor of Sioux Falls, who attested in a letter that, quote, most of the Syrians we have here are very law-abiding, and that may possibly be due to the fact that the leaders among them are men of a very high type. 
Carl Hager is one of these leaders. He is highly respected not only by his own people, but by our American-born population. Sam, a naturalized Syrian and business partner of Hassan's father, also testified. He and Hassan ran the store together after Hassan's dad quit to go back to working for the city. Sam testified that Hassan was, quote, quite a saver, and had bought five shares in the Northern States Power Company at a value of $500. I think he'd make a good citizen, he said. I think he'd make a better one than I make. When asked if Hassan drank, Sam replied, absolutely not. He doesn't know what it looks like. The Syrians of Sioux Falls were more than willing to vouch for Hassan and his family, but Hassan's lawyer also submitted the testimonies of several American-born individuals with whom he was acquainted. One called Hassan a, quote, hard-working, law-abiding man, industrious, and a frank person. Another stated that, quote, I have never known him to be in any trouble and knew he was self-supporting and knew him as a law-abiding, respectable person. And, quote, I found him honorable in all my dealings with him. In a sworn affidavit, another attorney named Robert Reimer, who had worked for Hassan's dad, lauded the family. Quote, considered by the citizens of Sioux Falls, by those not of their own nationality, as among the best of the Syrian population of the city of Sioux Falls. He added that Hassan would make a desirable and good citizen of the United States. The family, quote, believe in American institutions, have educated themselves as to the Constitution of the United States and the various laws of this state, and, quote, they are very energetic in seeking knowledge and education. Their word is considered by the citizenry of Sioux Falls as very reliable. Hassan's family was law-abiding and dutifully contributed to charities. Reimer credited the influence of Hassan's father for the fact that, quote, practically no trouble of any kind has ever occurred here in which any person of Syrian extraction was ever involved. He concluded his letter saying that he, quote, believes that Hassan is one of the best of his race to have ever come to the city and knows that he desires to become a citizen. One of the best of his race? It speaks volumes about the time that one would write such a thing as a sincere endorsement. But on the whole, these testimonies told a much different story about how Syrians fit into small-town America. While on the national stage, white supremacist movements decried the corrupting influences of immigrants, on the ground in Sioux Falls, Syrians were a welcome presence, lauded not only by their neighbors and business partners, but also by the mayor of the city itself. As for Hassan, when asked if he had anything to say on his own behalf, on why he should be able to remain in the United States, he said, Why, yes. All my folks are here in this country and own property here. I got nobody in the old country, and I like this country too. I don't want to go back. But would they let him stay? The answer in just a moment. But first, a break for more 1930s radio. Let us raise a standard to which the wise and honest can repair. By the end of the 1930s, FDR's administration had learned to use radio effectively to get its message out. And with a rising tide of illiberal sentiment, it produced radio programs meant to impart lessons about the history of American values and democracy. Americans all, immigrants all. This is a story of how you, the people of the United States, made this country. Historian Jill Lepore has recently discussed these radio plays in her new history of the U.S. entitled These Truths. One such play combated the nativist sentiments of the day. In an episode on Near Eastern Migrants, the story of a Syrian peddler-turned-preacher adapted from the autobiography of Abraham Rehbani served as the basis for the narrative. October 6, 1891. I am here in New York with nine cents in my pocket and a debt of $40. But it is wonderful. Railroads in the air. Millions of people like a rushing river, happy, alive. Not slow and sad as in Syria. The play was an attempt to illustrate how Syrians fit into the story of the American dream. And though it did so with on-the-nose Arabic accents and by appealing to stereotypes, the true story of Abraham Rehbani was faithful to the experience of many Syrian Americans. I am an American citizen. Today I took the oath of allegiance. I will support 
and defend the Constitution. But after becoming a naturalized citizen, he began studying to get an education and become a minister. At the end of the story, Abraham gives a rousing sermon on American values. I was told that in America, money could be picked up everywhere. That was not true. But I have found that infinitely better things than money, knowledge, freedom, self-reliance, order, cleanliness, sovereign human rights, self-government, can be picked up everywhere in America. Radio plays were the podcasts of the 1930s. And now the internet is giving new life to the vast archives of dramas and discussion programs from radio's golden age. You can find a link to the full program on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. That was a fine talk you gave yesterday, Mr. Rabane. You speak English so well. Thank you, Dr. Baxter. Why, what's the matter? Have I offended you? No, it is only that song. Whenever I hear it, I think I can never say that land where my fathers died. But you are wrong. They were immigrants too, those early Americans. They prepared this American heritage for you. And now I know he was right. I was born in Syria as a child but I have been born in America as a man. Though it took a few years, deporting Hassan was relatively simple. Through the American consulate in Beirut, INS corresponded with the French authorities who controlled Syria during the 1920s and 30s. After they established Hassan's identity, a travel permit was issued, and he was sent on his way back to French-controlled Lebanon. As best as I can discern, Hassan never again came back to the U.S., even though he had left behind his entire nuclear family and roughly a decade of his early adult life. The First World War might have been the great rupture in the history of the Middle East, but it was the nativist policies of the Depression era that severed Hassan from his American family. The files of deportation cases do contain a lot of information about a person, but they don't always contain the end of the story. I learned about Hassan's fate by finding the remainder of his family who had stayed in the U.S. I turned up an obituary of Hassan's little brother, Nasser Din, and from there it was only a little more work to find Hassan's nephew by email. Much of the family still lives in Sioux Falls. In fact, Hassan's brother, who went by Nas, was born there. He served in the U.S. military during World War II, and he was at Omaha Beach as a medic during the Normandy invasion. After returning to Sioux Falls, he ran the family store for most of his life. And at the dance hall located in the El Riyadh Shrine of Sioux Falls, he was remembered as the king of the ballroom. Nas was a true native of South Dakota. But his obituary also spoke of his connection to the old country, how he could cook quintessential Lebanese dishes like kibbeh and menaish, and how he lived both in the Islamic and Christian traditions, embracing the virtues of selflessness, humility, love, kindness, and trust in God. It's a sentence that smiles in the face of those who speak of clash of civilizations today. When I emailed with Nasa's son, he told me that they didn't really know much about Hassan's branch of the family. He said that he's never even been to Lebanon, and that the Sioux Falls family are proud Roman Catholics today. I was reminded of Hassan's claim that he attended both the mosque and the church back in Lebanon. Here's what Tufts University scholar Nadim Shahadi told me when I asked him about it. I think sectarianism as we know it now is a new phenomenon. And so you have a large number of families that belong to several religions. There are Maronites in one place, Orthodox in another, Sunni in another, Protestant in another and Shiite in, in another. I can give you tons of examples. In fact, in Lebanon, there are family associations that assemble families from different sects. Say, the, the, the Dao family. There are Daos everywhere, and there are descendants of Daos who have changed names. And there are Druzes, Maronites, Catholics, Shiites, 
of the same family. And when I began to ask around more, it turned out that such stories were more common than I realized. Oh my God, they're like rabbits. Oof. Everywhere. There's all kinds of updates all over the world. South America, Canada, Europe, Middle East, Africa, everywhere. There's a whole slew of Christian Ukdis from Lebanon. Mohammed Okti is the son of Ali Okti, whose interview from the Neff Arab American collection we heard earlier in the episode. In his retirement, Mohammed's become a genealogy buff of sorts, particularly occupied with figuring out precisely how he is related to all the different Okdis and Agdis throughout the world, especially the first Syrian settlers of Sioux Falls. I would like to know why these guys went to South Dakota. What'd they go there for? What the hell was there in the 1800s that drew them? Throughout a career in education and social work, Muhammad was active in the Arab-American community of Dearborn, which has risen from a small suburb essentially created by the Ford Automotive Plant to become a center of Muslim life in America. You can read the books of historian Sally Howell to learn more about this community. Muhammad has run for political office as a Democrat on more than one occasion and has been a member of a long list of organizations. I participated in the civil rights movement, the women's movement. You know, I got involved with uh, party politics. I was also appointed to the board of regents at Eastern Michigan University. And I was also a a member of the Detroit Police Commission. I was a commissioner appointed by the mayor of uh, Detroit, Kilpatrick, at the time. First Arab American to serve in that capacity in the city. Muhammad has always been, in short, a dutiful citizen. This was something that ran in the family. My father, his brother Khalil, and his brother Khalid were all in the military in the Second World War. My uncle Ray Abdurrahman was in the military post-World War II. I think my aunt Zainab also served in some fashion. It was either a paramilitary or some kind of military for the for women. Can you imagine my grandfather, the same guy that left the Ottoman Empire because he didn't want to serve in the military of the Ottoman Empire and he registers for the draft in World War II? Really? On this point, Muhammad told me he feels bitter. I've been called names walking in the street. I've been called names. Go back where you came from. If I go to Canada, which is right across the Detroit River, there have been times that I've been stopped and sent to immigration because my name is Muhammad. What's annoying is that people served in the United States military in three different wars, paid taxes. I won't say all, but many of the people that say these things and act in this way, they haven't sacrificed for this country like we did. They haven't. My brother still to this day has not recovered from his war wounds. I have a cousin who fought with the VA for 30 years over Agent Orange poisoning that he got. And it wasn't until a year before he died that they finally gave him 100% disability. And then he died. My father helped to organize a trade union to help his fellow workers fellow Americans. Now, he was an immigrant here, right? But the point is, you know, he's a part of this American history. It turns out that many of Muhammad's family members have been politically active over the decades. His father's cousin, Alia, who we heard from earlier, was actually a prominent political activist in the Dearborn Arab American community. Full name, Aliyah Hassan. And I was always told, you are an independent being. And you are not anybody's plaything. You, you must educate yourself. It is written that it is incumbent on both male and female 
to seek knowledge, to seek knowledge even if it be in China. They must seek knowledge. And it was better that the ink of the scholar was more worthy than the blood of a martyr. And things like this, you know, were impressed upon us when we were children. Alia Hassan was a true iconoclast, and she ranks among the most outspoken feminists of the early Muslim community in America. But her political engagement was much broader than this. She was a staunch supporter of the struggle for civil rights in America. She worked with prominent African-American activists, such as Malcolm X. And despite social tensions and cleavages, some Arab-American activists, like Alia Hassan, sought to nurture solidarities with others who shared in the historical experience of exclusion. Arab-Americans secured a place among the many diasporas in the U.S. They took root in quintessentially American places like the automotive towns of the Midwest. But this was only to see their belonging repeatedly called into question through immigration and deportation policies and discrimination on the part of both officials and ordinary citizens. And that's why within the Arab-American community of today, the question of how to categorize oneself within the social and political categories and camps of American society is a subject of continued debate. There are admittedly few things we can say with confidence about race and identity in the United States throughout history. The Arab-American experience is vital to understanding the complete picture because of the ways in which the community has been constantly forced into a liminal position. And we'll return to this story, even to the story of Hassan himself, in later installments of Deporting Ottoman Americans. But people from modern-day Syria and Lebanon comprised only one of many groups that migrated to the U.S. from the Eastern Mediterranean from the late 19th century onward. The people were referred to as Ottoman Americans. Join me and a whole bunch of other guests in Episode 3 of Deporting Ottoman Americans as we learn about the tens of thousands of Sephardic Jews who left the Ottoman Empire for the United States. Many thanks to Reem Bailouni and all of our guests on this episode, as well as to our script editor on this podcast, Sam Dolby. Stay tuned for the full credits for this episode in just a bit. But first, one last cultural artifact of the Syrian diaspora, a song by a Lebanese singer named Tanyus Hamlawi, entitled Tabule. It's one of many Arabic songs that touches on the experience of migration, and it's a great way to round out this episode because rather than emphasizing what Syrians hope to gain from America, it mourns what might be lost in the experience of the diaspora. The simple pleasures of home, whether a siesta in the open air or a fresh taboule salad made from finely chopped parsley and bulgur wheat. Reem was kind enough to transcribe and translate some of the lyrics for us, and the last lines go something like this. I got used to the good life in our village home, with water jugs ready to honor our guests. And the shade of an oak on a hot summer day, oh, American, that's worth a million bucks. صفرتنا طولي يا ضيعتنا اشتقنا الأكل التبولي عصطي حطنا وزر خيار الأيلولي من نقبتنا وكب النيل المجبولي حد الشلال ضيع رباني معود على الكيف وفي عنا خواب ملان التكريم الضيف وفيات السين دياني بيعز الصيف بتسعى 
سوايا قمر كاني مليون ريال Reporting Ottoman Americans is an Ottoman History Podcast production. Our chief consultant for this series is Emily Popobita. My main collaborator on this episode is Reem Beluni. Our script editor is Sam Dolby. This episode also featured contributions by Akram Khater, Graham Pitts, Linda Gordon, Victoria Saker-Wiesti, Nadim Shahadi, and Mohamed Okti. You'll find conversations with many of these contributors and other scholars related to this episode on our website. The oral history interviews with Ali Okti and Ali Hassan came from the Neff Collection at the Smithsonian. They were conducted in the early 80s by Grant Farr. Thanks to Kay Peterson for the digital copies. Excerpts from Americans All, Immigrants All come from the WNYC archives. Thanks to archivist Andy Lancet, as well as reporter Julia Hart for the lead. Links to all other audio elements and music are found on autumnhistorypodcast.com. And special thanks to Sarah Afonso for the montage music in this episode. Finally, a big thank you to our dope patrons. Fadon Sinis, Carol Dean, Tarek Siddiqui, and Avery. You too can become a sponsor of our program through the link to our Patreon account on the website. Ottoman History Podcast is a non-commercial and completely independent scholarly project. I'm Chris Grayton. Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Deporting Ottoman Americans podcast.